Hello, this is Frank Falvey with Frank Presents, and I have the pleasure again to have Dr. Michael Walker-Jones with us. Welcome. Thank you, Frank. Uh, Michael, before we begin, could you just tell us your your background in education, uh, both your, your, your being, the degrees you have, and in, in your involvement, uh, lifetime involvement in education? Uh, gladly, Frank. I'm a uh, retired educator, having worked in the K-12 schools at elementary and high school level. I'm also a retired professor, having taught at Boston University and uh, Curry College, University of Louisville. Uh, I'm also a retired uh, ed uh, educator advocate, having worked for the Mass Teachers Association, the National Education Association. Currently, I'm doing some consulting work for the Alabama Commission on Higher Education. Uh, I'm a lifelong learner, um, and I've also been an advocate for peace and justice, uh, both in civic affairs as well as the political arena uh, and uh, in education itself. So uh, that's overall uh, my, uh, uh, my basic kind of education work. I'm also a, a father. I've lived in the uh, Franklin community for over 30 years now. Uh, raised my children here, my wife and I uh, have uh, loved this community and uh, my, uh, uh, my heart has also been in terms of community service. I've done soccer uh, coaching uh, at just about every level there is uh, here in Franklin. And again, it's a joy to uh, not only be with you, Frank, who I'm also been a friend for over 20 something years now. I don't know if you realize that, but, uh, but we've known each other for quite some time. Uh, so that, so that's a little bit of my background. Uh, and on top of all of that, since we're on radio, uh, I'm also African-American, born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and have worked in both the Deep South as well as the Northeast, Midwest, and a number of other places across the country. Michael, I keep hearing from Black Lives Matter and other leaders of, uh, of African-American groups that we need to sit down and have a conversation. Can, can you tell me what the nature of that conversation is? Uh, you know, Frank, I'll tell you, it's, it is not only a need for a conversation, uh, and I think the conversation needs to center around some things that happened in South Africa after apartheid uh, was ended there around reconciliation. And we've got a lot of recon <laughs> reconciling to do. Uh, 400 years ago um, in uh, 1619, uh, Africans were brought to this country forcibly, not at uh, their own uh, volition, uh, to serve as an economic driver uh, for labor. Uh, and we've referred to that as slavery. Uh, but it wasn't just African-Americans. First, let me make that point. <clears throat> African-Americans were the first uh, and the most dominant uh, but prior to that, uh, Native Americans, it was attempted to try to enslave Native Americans. Uh, one of the problems that happened around that was the fact that uh, they knew the land uh, better than the Europeans who were trying to populate the, and uh, agricultural-wise uh, grow the country at the time. But uh, 
as a result, uh, knowing the land, uh, they were hard to keep uh, incarcerated or under the, uh, the yoke of slavery because they would just run off because they knew how to live off the land as well as, again, the terrain better than their European uh, captors. Uh, but this conversation that we're talking about in terms of reconciliation goes back that far because we have built a system, uh, albeit one of the greatest experiments, I think, in the history of the world. It is still an experiment. We have not reconciled yet some of the flaws of that system when it started. Uh, and as a result, here we are in 2020, and we still have the systemic problems that range back over 400 years. Uh, and we've never reconciled that. We've never come to grips with that horrible history. So the conversation centers around a whole lot of areas, Frank, not only the economic disparity, the racial disparity, the, uh, uh, the disparities that come with discrimination in terms of work, health care, as well as uh, where you live in terms of the uh, restrictions and the segregation that has been imposed upon a number of people in this country. So that conversation is one that spans a whole lot of areas. So I think today, why don't we narrow that down? Why don't we talk about just one aspect of that? Uh, or maybe two. Uh, the first one being uh, that I think you brought to me, which was something that you're hearing from some of the Black Lives Matter folks. Uh, is their reaction to how people refer to them. And in some instances, it's a matter of black. In some aspects, it's a matter of people saying, oh, it's the African-Americans. And some people, okay, it's the, uh, uh, even though this is not a term that's used that frequently anymore, it's the Negroes. Uh, but all of that, in my mind, Frank, and so let me quickly get to to the heart of what I'd like to say around this is all of that is a distraction. The real issue uh, to me in terms of whether you call me black or you call me African-American, uh, the real issue here is how are we reconciling the issues of systemic racism, which are pervasive in every single aspect of our culture, uh, as people. So uh, I'll let you sort of help to guide that conversation from the aspect of, okay, uh, let's get engaged. <laughs> well, first of all, you refer to South Africa and uh, the uh, Episcopal priest, Reverend uh, Dr. Tufo, or Tutu, yeah, Desmond Tutu. Desmond Tutu. He was part of a commission that was formed by the government. I'm taking it that, that the conversation here in the United States needs not to be a commission, but more a personal, uh, local, one-on-one, -on -one, or, or am I incorrect? I, you know, Frank, I think you're, uh, you know, I think you're incorrect. Okay. And I say that, it, you know, with all friendship and love. Yeah. It needs to be official. 
we have got to start to come to grips with the official government sanctioned aspects of racism and its foundations in this country. It needs to be on the record. It needs to be a permanent record. It needs to be something similar to what happened uh, after the Holocaust and what happened in Nazi Germany. We need to know the real history, all of us, blacks, whites, uh, Latinx, Native Americans, all of us need to come to grips with the real history. Let me give you an example. There are all kinds of references to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Which, uh, I, which I was surprised. I had never, Michael, never, ever heard of. And apparently, people that lived in Tulsa never even knew the story. How could that happen? Well, there are some... And first of all, can you explain the story a little? Okay. All right. So, uh, in the 19, uh, early 1900s, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was a thriving Black community. And the Black community was so prosperous, it was referred to as Black Wall Street. The section of town, I think, was called uh, uh, Greenwood. And the, that section of town was so, so threatening to the economic engine uh, that was driven by the whites in Oklahoma that a number of people took it upon themselves to literally bomb with airplanes, firebomb, kill with guns, knives, hundreds of people in Greenwood under the guise of what was called a race riot, but basically it was mass murder and destroyed that black economic engine. The purposes of that ultimately, which have been studied uh, and documented was simply to destroy the economic engine of that viable community. Uh, it's never been rebuilt uh, to the extent to where it is a thriving economic engine again. And the folks at the time uh, stood back after they saw the destruction that they had wreaked uh, and said, mission accomplished. My point here, is that that's one example, one of hundreds of other similar events that have taken place in this country. Rosewood in Florida, Wilmington, Elaine, Arkansas, other names that probably are not familiar to our fellow citizens here in Franklin, uh, may not be familiar to you as well, Frank. And those, again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. As a matter of fact, if your, uh, if our fellow citizens here, Franklin, were to just simply Google black massacres in the United States, 
you will instantly see there are a couple of projects, uh, a listing of some of them. And again, yeah, you'll run into probably about 40 or 50 stemming from 2019 all the way back to 18, I think it stops at like 1805. Uh, there may be a couple that go back into the 1700s, but again, that's just a quick survey, the 60 or so that you'll see on that website. Uh, and the conversation then that we need to have is, what were some of the mechanisms, and here's one of the questions that a commission would ask, what were some of the mechanisms that were used to not only disenfranchise, but also uh, emasculate the Black, the Native American, uh, and other immigrant communities in this country. One last point on this particular aspect. In Georgia, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, throughout the South, Missouri, Kentucky, and others, there was a, a habit on some of the uh, citizens of various towns and uh, counties that if they wanted to destroy a particular segment of the community, let's say, for example, the Cherokee Indians who in South Carolina own property, and you wanted to destroy that particular community, one of the techniques that was used was to go and burn the courthouse. Now, why would you do that? Because the deeds are in the courthouse. Absolutely, Frank. <laughs> so you destroy all of the records in the history of ownership. And then you get some judge to write a writ that says, oh, this is the lawful owner of this property, who probably was just some guy, typically a white member of the community who then says, well, I own this land, and then dare you to prove that you have any claim to that land. Now, the judge has said that you own it in the face of no, no other existing documentation. What do you do? Well, the sheriff comes in and says, he's got a document, you don't, so you have to leave. This is the rightful owner. And there are incidences of that happening throughout this country, Frank. Um, and what I would suggest is, as a matter of fact, uh, part of this conversation, that's why I say, when you look at what you call me, whether it's African-American or black, you can see how I'm, you know, I'm trying to juxtapose that with being just a distraction. That's nothing more than sort of taking us out of the mainstream of what this conversation really has to be. All right. Um, the the conversation then for you is is over uh, the what you call systemic uh, uh, ingrained uh, practices. Systemic. Uh, I want to go back to to uh, sixteen nineteen, uh, and you were talking about slaves and trying to. Uh, have Indians as slaves. And I'd like you to point out the difference between Europeans 
who were indentured servants yeah. and, 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 not, and not slaves. Can you point that out to begin with? Yeah, again, here's one of those sort of misunderstood aspects of, of American history. There were Europeans who were put into slavery, into bondage. And there were Europeans who were uh, basically self-conscripted into indentured servitude. Now, let's not confuse and say that all Europeans who came to America were indentured servants. That is not true. There were a number of Irish and Italians who actually were put into slavery. Most of them came the same route as African slaves. That is, they came in through the Caribbean. Because albeit in the initial parts of the uh, creation of this country, they were uh, people were brought in on the East Coast through places like Charleston uh, or Hampton, Virginia. Uh, Norfolk, Virginia, um, and other places all up and down the East Coast. The majority of slaves ultimately came in through the Caribbean. Um, just a quick aside point. For example, uh, my family, uh, we've all done our DNA. And one would look at me and say, oh, you're Black or you're African-American. My DNA is composed of, uh, one, let me do the ones that are surprising for you. One, African Hasidic Jew. Hasidic Jew? Yes. Uh, now, now, can we just explain <laughs> that a Hasidic Jew is, is a little different than a, uh, a reformed or, how do you define, most yes. Hasidic Jews would be, would be recognized in New York City. Yes, and, 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 and they have a genetic pattern that puts them uh, square in the middle of, a, um, uh, of northern, northwestern Africa. Uh, and uh, I happen to be, uh, again, a descendant of someone who, <laughs> who, who, shares that, uh, who shares that genetic pattern, and therefore I can be traced genetically back to that particular region. Uh, I also happen to be uh, uh, part um, from uh, Senegal. Um, and in, in Senegal, I would have been a Muslim. Uh, I'm also part uh, Irish uh, and, uh, and also part uh, uh, it's Northern European, as well as uh, a strong uh, African American and a small little percentage of uh, of Native American, just real small. Not enough for me to claim to be uh, Native American, but it's uh, it's significant enough to show up at least in a two percent range uh, uh, within my DNA. Now. Why is that even relevant to the conversation? Because what it says, Frank, is again, 
the 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 entirety of slavery in this country goes to what I would call the melting away of uh, to a large degree of many of for many of us our African heritage. Yes, we have a strong and I have a strong tie to my African DNA, but that's not all that composes me in terms of my DNA. I also have run across many who believe that uh, they are strictly European who have come to find out that, well, you know what? No, you've got a significant part of you that is African-American or from Africa uh, or black, but they don't look it. But when you look at their DNA, it comes out. So the reconciliation in terms of the conversation that I'm talking about extends more than just the systemic aspects of our, uh, of our systems. It also goes to the core of what we in America also have to face up to, which is that there has been a commingling of people to the point where all of us are in this together. We cannot say, that it's just whites and just blacks and just Native Americans. All of us share a common history at this point and should come to a common reconciliation to where at the base of it, we all extend the same love and consideration to one another. That ought to be the outcome of these official kinds of talks and reconciliation that we all realize that, you know what, we share more in common than we have in terms of differences. However, we've got to come to grips with how we have based much of our policy and the systemic racism on color, on how a person looks. One quick example before we, you know, you know before we shift into another area. Let me give you the one that uh, has a uh, huge, huge basis in research. There's a book called The Color of Law. Uh, and forgive me, I forgot to uh, bring, uh, bring my list of authors with me today, but the, but, but the name of the book is The Color of Law. And it documents the government-supported segregation, legal segregation, in all 50 states, including Massachusetts, of blacks and whites. Now, how was this done? Through restrictive deeds, through redlining, through the government not allowing black soldiers as they were returning from World War II or from the Korean War, not to get VA loans to buy homes, similar to what white soldiers were given, restricted covenants in terms of new housing developments that were put up. And these laws, uh, Frank, were created uh, not just at the federal level, but in all 50, uh, uh, currently 50 states. There weren't 50 uh, after World War II, but, uh, but actually all 50 states have these kinds of restrictions or had them up until, uh, let's say, 19, uh, about 1980. 
And in some places, some of these restricted covenants, albeit they are not, quote, enforceable, unquote, anymore. And I say that in quotes because there are still some places where they will put that up as well. When we put this house up for sale, there are certain restrictions, but, uh, you know, that we can and can't, you know, that we have to go back to the HOA in order to get approval. Um, and so the question is, if these were challenged, would they be sustained? Um, and uh, which brings up my fears around the Supreme Court, but we can get into that, you know, later. But it is important for folks to realize that from the Civil War on, these restricted covenants and segregation became a mainstay of the method used to keep blacks and whites separated in terms of where they lived. Again, the, uh, the, the name of the book is The Color of Law. Uh, and uh, hopefully before uh, we finish up, I'll find the author uh, uh, of that particular piece. Michael, in your saying of, of the uh, DNA that's made up of many different nationalities, do you believe that that is widespread uh, among uh, African Americans, uh, or is it unique to your family? Uh, oh, I, it's widespread. Uh, I mean, it's uh, as I've uh, accumulated the list of my genetic cousins, uh, to which now I'm I'm boasting well over uh, 150 genetic cousins that I've been able to that have uh, that have been identified. Uh, and that many of us have been in contact with. I have direct genetic cousins, uh, some who live in Ireland still. Uh, um, again, we're talking six, seven, eight generations past. But, I've got but, some. Yeah, go ahead. You're, 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 are you talking 50, 70 percent of of uh, uh, African Americans would have that type of of DNA, or or is it? My point is 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 how widespread among African-Americans would a DNA sample be? Uh, well, you know, I, I would suggest to you, Frank, that all of us have these kinds of mixtures, everyone. I would say that it's, you know, you're looking at, you know, I don't uh, think- I, I would agree with that. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't I think this is unique to African-Americans. Uh, I, I think it's much more pervasive throughout our entire population. That's my point. Then my next question is, young uh, uh, psychologists uh, believe that our ancestors had a, have a continuing influence on us as to who they were and making us who we are. Uh -huh. Do you believe that, that your, your different genetic DNA influences you today as to who you are? No, uh, no. I I say that it's it's my uh, it's my uh, 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 immediate ancestors that have an influence on who I am. Okay, and it's not my DNA. Uh, my DNA only tells me uh, some of the places that my historical ancestors may have been or who they were. My immediate family, uh, my great grandmother my grandmother, my great-grandfather, people that I knew in my life, uh, my aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, 
those are the people who have had influence on me. And so let me give you, again, an example of what I'm talking about. Again, this is a personal example. It's one that I've used uh, uh, both uh, in family gatherings and at family funerals. Uh, I recently had a great grand aunt uh, who passed away. And at her funeral, uh, I brought up to the young people there as a remembrance of her, how brave and how loving she and others of her generation were to me. Uh, and again, for our fellow citizens and stuff, I'm 70 years old. So I'm going back now to the 1950s. At, uh, Good time. <laughs> uh, well, I was a little kid, all right, uh, five, six, four, seven years old, all right, all I was a teenager. Years. Yeah. Oh, you were? Oh, okay. Uh, well, then you may be able to relate to this. I don't know if your family did this, but mine did. I used to love getting in the car, going on trips. Now, why did I love that? Because it always meant that the family would be cooking up some great food, potato salad, pies, cakes, chicken, uh, uh, ham sandwiches. Uh, we would have these, uh, you know, these thermos full of Kool-Aid and other wonderful drinks and treats. And we would stop along the side of the road and we would always picnic. And it was always with a, you know, some kind of tablecloth. We would have, uh, you know, the uh, uh, plastic where it wasn't in existence then and stuff. So we would have these big elaborate picnic tables and uh, I mean, uh, picnic baskets. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Would look forward to it. Anytime, you know, my aunts and uncles, great grandmother and elders would say, Hey, okay, we're going to go visit so-and-so up or down uh, up to the North. Cause I was raised in Louisville or down to the South. Uh, it was always fun. What I didn't realize was that the reason why my family was putting together these picnics was to shelter me and my brothers and sisters and cousins from the harsh reality of Jim Crow. Because we could not stop any place. We couldn't stop in what would be called a rest area or just go to any restaurant. We had to be extremely cautious where we stopped, whether it was for gas, to eat, or to use the restroom. They sheltered us from that because they did not want us at that young tender age to be exposed to the harsh reality that certain parts of this country were shut off to us. So that's what helped to form me, not my DNA, but those people who I uh, uh, who raised me and who have raised others. Uh, and similar to that, I have the responsibility for my children and my nieces and nephews, not only to show them the progress that we have made, but to keep alive in them the history of where we have come from. That's why these conversations are important. Uh, and if you want, we can shift into well, how does that impact young people? And let me, you well, know, I guess we, we move. 
you know, we'll talk about how some of the Black Lives Matter folks are right on in terms of their indignation and their anger uh, toward this system. Before we shift into that, let me say that I grew up in the city of Boston. My father never owned a car until I was 18 years of age. He always said, if you can't get there by MBTA, you don't need to go. You don't need to go. <laughs> uh, but uh, what, what I'd like to reaffirm that you're saying, and, and I agree with, that it is your immediate environment uh, and your local environment and your relatives that place, a, a, to a large degree, place who you are. That's right. That's what I was hearing you say. That's correct. All right. Um, your, your, your DNA only tells you about the sort of uh, the journey of your chromosomes. <laughs> uh, your mind and your environment tell you about your immediate journey. Michael, uh, go ahead and go into your uh, what you were saying about uh, the background of Black Lives Matters. What, what you were beginning to say. Yeah, you know, I think there's a, there's a piece that's misunderstood. And again, I've heard some of our, uh, some of our fellow residents uh, uh, sort of make comment about this. And to some degree, uh, I've had to uh, sort of uh, reflect and in some instances, Frank, hold my tongue. Uh, but so let me tell you what some of that dilemma, uh, that, that dilemma is young people now are truly angry. They have a sense of purpose. Uh, they want things to change, not five years from now. They want them to change now. They want us as older folks and as people who are in authority uh, to stop with the hypocrisy. Uh, and in many instances, those who are uh, protesting, uh, they fall into three groups. There are those who want to, uh, uh, and I'm getting this from my daughter. This is not me. I'm getting this from my daughters and from my son and from others and stuff, young people who are out there, who are part of Black Lives Matter uh, and others that I encounter. The three groups are one, those are those who are protesters and they are out there peacefully trying to uh, uh, get things changed. Uh, they are expressing their anger through their protests, through their organizations, and they're trying to influence the system. There are those who are out there simply for the expression of the system is broken. Therefore, it is uh, in my preview to create and wreak havoc in order to get people to pay attention to me. These are people who might even describe themselves as anarchists. Uh, and they are angry. And their anger to a large degree is justified because these are folks who have seen uh, and experienced, uh, whether it's police brutality 
or education inequality or the lack of being able to get a job, they're angry because they see the way the system has literally rigged itself against them. And then there are those who are opportunists, people who say, you know what, they will use language that probably is not as diplomatic as mine and stuff. And they'll say, you know what, forget the system. Uh, I don't care who owns that store. Uh, I have been deprived for so long that I'm just going to break into that place and take what I want. Okay. Because at this particular point in time, the system is just corrupt. And my breaking into these places, even though they're supposed to be a social contract of, let's say, uh, of not stealing or what, they say to heck with that. We're just going to do it. Now, I've heard a number of my neighbors say, well, you know, those people who are breaking into places, if they would just stop, everything else I can understand. Even the anarchists, uh, the people who up in Seattle took over the, you know, that six square block area. Well, those people really shouldn't be doing that. They're stopping the commerce and whatnot. But the peaceful protesters, those people are okay. But up in Seattle, that area, if I'm correct, saw a dramatic increase in crime and violence within that neighborhood. That's right. And and what is your comment about uh, uh, about what happened within the neighborhood when it was taken over? You know, Frank, it's it's the <laughs> it's the thing that happens whenever you try to set up a society, isn't it? it you know, you got to have rules, and if people don't want to abide by the rules, you have. Uh, either violence or you're going to have anarchy and you're going to, and then you have to have some means of trying to keep the, you know, you, you know, uh, getting people to adhere to the rules. So the main thing that they were fighting against uh, from a sociological or even an anthropological experiment and stuff, they proved their point in that here it is, we set up this area and we cannot control it without rules, without some kind of social compact. Uh, and at the same time, you say, well, that one didn't work, but then don't forget, we did have Occupy Wall Street where we didn't have that kind of violence breakout. Uh, so just because we have anarchists or people who want to, uh, you know, express themselves in this way, uh, as an academic, I say, well, you know, you're going to have all kinds of derivations of how people control some of them will go awry, some of them may not. My point though, is that those people are out there. And until we come to grips with what it is that puts them in those situations, what it is that makes them think that this particular activity or this action will lead toward change, we're forced to keep repeating it over and over and over again. That's why I come back to this reconciliation conversation that has to be official, that has to start to help people sort of get these particular issues out there in the open. And then we have to start creating policies to deal with it, Frank. So my point is here that the young people who are out there, don't lump them all into the same, into the same boat. And also don't, don't think that by disparaging one aspect 
and saying the whole thing is wrong because one aspect is wrong, whether it's those who believe that they are entitled to go into and break into people's stores or burn them down, that that makes them uh, horrible people uh, as opposed to those who are peacefully protesting and yet still get, uh, uh, whether it's tear gas, pepper sprayed, or having rubber bullets shot at them or being hit in the gut as we have seen, Okay, that it does not make it right for us to just lump them all into one basket and say that the whole thing is wrong. We've got to understand every single aspect of that. And we can't do that until we start opening ourselves up for conversations as to what is driving people toward those kinds of actions. Well, I want to say that the massive crowds that have peacefully demonstrated are absolutely huge. They're absolutely unbelievable as to the size and as to the makeup, uh, ethnically, age-wise, uh, of those that are protesting. Um, I'm not sure uh, that I have, I mean, I've seen them uh, march on uh, the mall in Washington, but I don't think I've ever seen consistently week after week, day after day, such peaceful crowds with such large numbers of people that are protesting. What is your comment about uh, the the nature of those crowds? I I, I am uh, I am also like you. I'm in awe of the how people have sustained their efforts, how they are in the face of one of the worst viral crisis in modern history, that they're still out there uh, protesting, uh, that, the, that the entire environment that has spawned this has spread like the virus itself worldwide. And I also am surprised, and I'm going to take a quick aside here, at how we as a country, albeit we have our own issues, we are letting other pieces of the world get away with some similar kinds of atrocities. And I'm mentioning now Hong Kong. I cannot believe that here it is and stuff. We're in the midst of a civil and social upheaval. And yet the Chinese at this point are cracking down on the Hong Kong people uh, in ways that, you know, go beyond reason as far as I'm concerned. But that's for but, another issue. But I mean, you, I mean you, that's for another day. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, w- I would like to say your reconciling commission has a lot of validity to it. But I, I believe there's something missing. Uh, there has to be another part. Uh, of action that this crowd is calling for. Uh, and it seems that this is the opportunity for yes. local and state and, and regional looking at, at systemic changes. Um, isn't there, uh, wouldn't you recommend uh, that there's another different entirely component beside the Reconciliation Commission that has to now take some nuts and bolts. I'm a nuts and bolts guy, okay? Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not going to have change unless, as you say, we put it in the rules or 
we put it in society. Uh, how do you see that happening? Oh, uh, you're absolutely right, Frank. I, I'm only giving, and again, uh, I apologize to my federal fellow citizens here in Franklin uh, if if I'm coming across with just a simplistic view of just the commission, I'm uh, you know, that's not what I'm trying to convey at all. Uh, I'm trying to say that that's a beginning. Absolutely, our leaders at both the town council uh, all the way up to Congress need to heed what I think people are calling for out in the streets, which is systemic change. Okay, so let's talk about locally. Uh, uh, I'd rather not talk about locally. I'd rather talk about <laughs> uh, statewide or, or even, e even a, uh, uh, a national approach. Uh, well, but it, yeah, but look, uh, yeah, but Frank, let's not let's not avoid the tough conversation. <laughs> All right. Well, the, t the tough conversation. <laughs> the tough conversation. Uh, for let me give it, let me give you a little background on Franklin. Okay. I moved here in 1964. I live in 920 Pond Street. The house that I I live in was up for sale for quite a while. And it was only years later that it dawned on me maybe why that house hadn't sold for a while. Four doors down were the Browns. The Browns were African-American, very involved in education. When I came to Franklin, yes, there was not only redlining in the city of Boston, but there was an attitude in Franklin, okay, of being a white community, okay? Yes. Uh, and even within one of the things I hope we get to someday is even churches are segregated by, by color. Um, they used to be segregated in the thirties by nationality, but Franklin, I think has overcome much of the thinking of the sixties locally when mm -hmm. it concerns races, uh, has really changed. What hasn't changed, okay, is we can't get a handicap access ramp in the downtown Franklin because in 72, they passed a, a, a bill that said you don't have to put a handicap ramp in unless you spend 25%. And no one has considered that a priority because they say it costs too much money. Well, look at the virus. Look at all the money we're putting in the virus. Our priorities, both locally, uh, statewide, nuts and bolts point of view, have to change. That's correct, Frank. And that's why, let's, again, let's focus on Franklin. You just brought up one, the uh, handicap access. Let me, just, let me just throw out two more. Go ahead. One, uh, for years, I have been advocating that we need to hire more teachers of color specifically in our public schools here in Franklin. The response I get back is, oh, we can't find them. Uh, you know, that's the old adage that, okay, well, you know, the question is how do you go and look and are you really looking? 
but it should be a priority. And I don't mean just one or two. I mean that we ought to make it a priority to where at least, at least 15% of the faculty and staff at uh, Franklin High Schools uh, ought to be people of color. Okay, can I, can I stop for a second? Sure. And, and, and let me ask this. The, the a counter argument somewhat to that, even in this presidential election, Joe Biden is, is apparently going to pick a woman of color. Is it, how important is that compared to an issue of picking the person most qualified to do the job? There's a trade-off, isn't there? Well, it's a, there's a trade-off if you believe that everything coming into that decision up to this point has been equitable. Ah, for me, I say, no, it has not. I say this, this is part of why this conversation is so important. We have years, years of shutting people out purposefully. And the only thing that's going to correct that is going to be years of inclusiveness. We can't do it simply based upon, oh, it's the most qualified. Well, yes, we would like to have a society where if everything being equal, let's go for the most qualified person. But Frank, that is not the rule. That is not the way we have operated. And so in some degree, we have got to start making these corrections. And in some ways, we owe those people an opportunity to start to expand into communities where they have not been before. The professional communities, I think, are, uh, again, uh, obligated at this point to start to cultivate and to get people of color into those particular uh, industries. Education is one. It happens to be one that I feel passionate about. Also happens to be one that over the years I've had an opportunity to academically study as well as professionally be engaged in some of the activities in terms of trying to get people into this profession. Michael, uh, we, we need to begin to wind down. And what I would like to ask you is, what do you envision some of our future conversations to be about? so that the listening audience would have some idea of what, where we're going to go. Uh, you know what? I, that's a great, <laughs> uh, that's a, <clears throat> it's a great question, Frank. Uh, let's start with a more detailed uh, understanding of education. That's one. Mm -hmm. uh, what it is that we're, how we're failing our children in terms of not telling or teaching them real history. And what I mean by real history is honest, open, honest history about uh, especially American history. Another avenue is in the business world. How is it that when you look at businesses across this country, uh, that in, in particular Blacks and Latinos uh, seem to be missing? There's a reason for that, and we need to have that conversation. Both of those are well over our conversations. <laughs> okay. Michael Healthcare. Uh, you know, you, you know, that's another area and stuff. So there's three right there. Uh, 
Michael, can I make a, a su su suggestion that I'm, I'm interested in African-American couples don't seem to be able to stay together. The man seems to leave. There's, there's got to be a history and a, a reason that has existed and from the beginning that, that probably needs explanation to bring up to today. Is that a conversation that's appropriate? Well, you know what? And this is why I love you, Frank, because number one, you're blunt, you're honest, and you come from the heart. <laughs> okay? Because, because, because what you just said is one of those stereotypes and myths out there, but it does have a foundation in some things that systemically have happened in the black community. The idea that black men don't seem to stick around has some very, very deep-rooted systemic reasons why, and some of them are sustained and were sustained and supported by the government from the 1800s on. And they are direct descendants of the, what I would call white supremacist attitude that black men are nothing more than commodities. And yes, let's get into that one. Uh, the uh, the gentleman for the color of uh, uh, the color of law is Richard Rothstein. I encourage uh, our fellow citizens to, uh, uh, if you get a chance, to uh, read that book. Uh, and the other book, in, in in anticipation of our talking about uh, black males, <clears throat> is a book called uh, Slavery by Another Name. Okay, Slavery by Another Name. Uh, and Slavery by Another Name is uh, by Douglas Blackman. Okay, Slavery by Another Name is the book that will give you a little more insight into this idea about black males and what happens and has happened to black males since 1865, when we thought slavery ended, but it didn't. Let uh, me put a plug in for the Franklin Public Library. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you probably wanna, if you have a chance, uh, uh, they're doing stuff, stuff virtually and you can pick up stuff at the curbside. Uh, and this would be a great opportunity to uh, uh, see if they have those resources or make sure they have them. Absolutely. Michael, it, it, it's a pleasure. I look forward to our uh, next conversation. And uh, I'm always more appreciative of every time you come on uh, the program and enlighten me. So this is uh, Frank Falvey and Michael Walker-Jones uh, uh, wishing you the best of uh, health and uh, God bless you.